return of the midweeks. Hello, my friends. Happy day to you. Whatever day you're listening to this, I pray that the Lord makes it a fruitful one with uh, deep joy in your souls. We're going to meet one of the greatest people in all of the Old Testament. We're going to meet Jonathan, the son of Saul. Now remember, this book of Samuel is about many things. It's about the early, the lives of the early kings and their sons. It's about God's way with the world. It's about stories of faith and unbelief. And it's about this general truth about how God rules the world, that he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And we're going to meet Jonathan, who is far and away one of the most brave and humble men in the Old Testament. And one of the things that's ironic about this is that Saul, this first king, has just been told by Samuel in the previous part of chapter 13 that his kingship will not endure. So his sons won't reign after him. And then the next thing that happens is we find out that his eldest son, Jonathan, is absolutely worthy of being the next king. He's a man of faith. He's humble. He's honorable. And as he interacts, Jonathan, with both David when he comes up and Saul, we see ever-increasing godliness and wonderful character, bravery, and true head. Chesed, excuse me, <laughs> the Hebrew word for covenant faithfulness or love, chesed, choked on it, forgive me. And uh, so it's it's ironic, but it's also the power of God and the sovereignty of God that God has allowed Jonathan's godliness to go down, not as a king, as a prince, but not as a king of Israel. And so here we are. God is in control, but we're going to meet Jonathan here. And we're going to start in verse 19 of chapter 13. I chose to end on verse 18 last time. Time was going on. We didn't quite finish the chapter, but this is a good transition as well. So the last section ended with the raiding parties coming out from the Philistines, you'll remember, as this sign of how bad things were for Saul at the moment, that he couldn't even stop these raiding parties from going into Israel. And now we're going to, again, pan out for a second, and we're going to see how bad things were for Israel, even so much so that there weren't even any, like, swords for them to use in their whole army, except for Jonathan and the king, Saul. So let's read, starting verse 19. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords and shields. Sorry, swords and spears. So... The Philistines have that much control over Israel is that they were able to actually wipe out the blacksmiths, take away the forges, and make it so that they couldn't make weaponry on their own. Verse 20, But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattocks, his axe, or sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares, and for the mattocks, and a third of the shekel for sharpening of axes, axes or for the setting of goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people of with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. So here we have, again, we've pulled out. We're not kind of in the story. We've pulled out to explain why only Saul and Jonathan have a sword. 
And that sword's going to be important in a sec because Jonathan's going to use it really, really, really well. But it's talking about this oppression of the Philistines over Israel that they not only don't allow them to have the trade of blacksmithing in their nation, amongst their tribes, but they also have this extortion rate of blacksmithing for Israelites. And I'm not sure exactly, like, I can't say, you know, this was going to cost you a thousand bucks to do this. I'm not sure what the conversion would be. But my assumption is the fact that they're telling you how much these this work costs was that they were being extorted by it. Like a third of a, two thirds of a shekel to just sharpen your plowshare is, is, is really expensive stuff. So they're trying to keep Israel oppressed by by extortion prices and by not letting them have the ability to make their own defenses. And so, hey, if you're into it, this would be like a reason why there'd be a Second Amendment in the States where it's legal for uh, Americans to own their own guns because one of the things oppressing armies do is they take away the weapons and the means of owning weapons from the people they want to oppress. And so this really is one of the roots, maybe not this story, but one of the roots of the Second Amendment was that Americans don't want to find themselves in a place where the Philistines won't even let them own steel, lest they make guns, and to extort them for the basics of life. All right, so Jonathan has a sword. Verse 1 of chapter 14. One day, Jonathan and his, the son of Saul said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he didn't tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah, in the pomegranate cave at Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord at Shiloh, wearing an ephod, and the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Okay, so this is where the story really begins in this chapter about what Jonathan's going to do. He's kind of bored of sitting around. He's got faith. He wants to act out his faith. He says to his armor bearer, let's go and attack this Philistine garrison, the one at Michmash that he just told us about. An armor bearer was kind of like the caddy of those days. Like if you were a golf, if you're a golf player, your job is to swing your golf club, but your job isn't really to carry around your own bag and clubs. Um, and so an armor bearer would carry around swords and spears and whatever the warrior needed. So if it was range battle, the armor bearer would hand the warrior spears. And if it was going to be close range battle, all of a sudden, then the armor bearer would hand over the sword to the warrior. And so they complemented each other. The armor bearer would do the management and maybe say like, watch your back or whatever. And the warrior would just be free to use his skills without having to burden himself by carrying around a lot of stuff. And they went out, they didn't tell his father. So this is interesting here. And it's kind of the beginning of seeing that there's going to be a division between Saul and Jonathan and also explain why Saul gets so confused later. Um, so, and we also meet the priests. Okay. So Ahijah is there. And so this story actually connects us all the way back to the beginning of Samuel, low those 13 chapters earlier where um, Hannah is going up and meets Eli the priest, remember? The priest of the Lord at Shiloh. And so this brings about all, all of a sudden we're catching up on all our history, remembering Eli, remembering the curse about how um, things were not going to go well with his descendants. Remember Ichabod, who was named 
on the day of the terrible battle and the loss of Israel where Eli and his sons died. So all of that history is coming now back as a reminder of that time where Israel really got wiped out. Maybe it's even just to say, hey, is Israel going to get wiped out here again? And if not, how is Israel going to be saved? And it's going to be saved through Jonathan, the son of the king that the people wanted, but is actually a king in the image of the other nations instead of a king of faith, like Jonathan's going to be a man of faith. Verse 4, within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. And the name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sena. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Okay, so now we get some geography. Whenever you get details like this, it always kind of contributes to the story. Usually Hebrew stories are very, very sparse in description. It's usually just what people do and what God does and what people say and what God says. That's usually the whole story. But when you start getting geography, it matters. And they're painting a picture, not just so that you can picture it in your mind's eye, but so you can understand what's going on in the story here. The Philistine garrison has set themselves up at the top of a hill, which is good military strategy because they don't have to defend that side, right? Um, they can't be attacked up a hill. That's what they're thinking. So that's why you would station your army at the top of a hill is because it makes it very hard to be attacked from that direction and easy to defend that direction. You just throw rocks down on people while they're coming up if they attack you. That's even why where Jerusalem is built. Jerusalem is built at the top of a hill with some steep cliffs around many sides of it because it's a wonderful defensible position. And so the Philistines have put themselves here at this very defensible position, which only increases Jonathan's success here. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. So here's Jonathan's faith. He just knows maybe God will do something because he can do anything. And if, quote unquote, and if only Saul had that same faith is kind of the comparison you're seeing here. And as armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart, do as you wish, behold, I am with you heart and soul. So this armor bearer is a faithful man. He's a man of chesed. He's willing to both live and die with Jonathan. And that's where his faith is at. Maybe he doesn't believe in the Lord as much as Jonathan does, but he definitely believes in the Lord enough to follow Jonathan. Then Jonathan then said, verse 8, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So this is really interesting. This is how Jonathan's thinking. We were just told about this rocky crag on both sides. So there's like a gulch or a valley or something like this, which is really hard to go down and really hard to go up. And Jonathan says, let's be willing to be used by the Lord to fight here. And this will be the sign that the Lord's with us. If we go and say, hey, we, we want to fight you guys. And the other army says, um, okay, we'll, we'll attack you. Then who knows what God's going to do. Because that's the less likely thing. The, the other army obviously doesn't want to charge down one side of the cliff and get all messy and out of order and then charge up another side and be all tired and sweaty when they attack Jonathan. They're more likely to say, uh, you come up and deal with, and we'll, we'll fight you over here, invite us into the camp, because then Jonathan has to do all that hard work. And so 
he's almost saying like, if they do the easy thing, that means God's going to be with us, which is kind of crazy. So he's setting God up to, he's really saying to God, like, I want to do this. So if they say the thing I expect them to say, then I'm going to attack them believing you're with me. But if they do the thing that doesn't make sense, then I'll run away. <laughs> or or I'll, I'll think you're saying, no, don't do this. That's when I'll run away. So he's setting things up so that the chances are that they'll respond a certain way. And that's going to be the way God answers here. But he's wanting to submit it to the Lord. He's saying, well, God's in control of these guys' hearts. And whatever they respond, I'm going to take it as a leading of the Lord. But he's got really great faith in this. But it's not, it's not like a presumptive faith. He's not assuming it's going to go well. He's just saying, I, I'm ready to die here for the Lord. I just can't sit around. I want to go and fight. I believe in God. And if they say, you come and attack us, then I'll hear God saying, attack and win. And so there we go. Verse 11. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. So they're laughing at them. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. So this is great news. They've said, come up here. We're going to beat the snot out of you. And you get to do all the, the rough walking through these crags. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and the arm bear after him. So that's how steep it is. He has to, he's totally vulnerable, but he's probably in his head. He's thinking, hey, I've convinced these guys to let me get into their camp without them attacking me while I come up this cliff. So he has to go up on his hands and feet, totally vulnerable, couldn't defend himself if he tried, but here he goes. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer, killed them after him. So Jonathan just goes mad. He's got his sword with him. And so he's knocking them over and the armor bearer is like knifing them, maybe grabs their own swords and starts taking them out. And at the first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, they killed about 20 men and with, within as much as half a furlough's length of an acre of land. And there was panic in the camp, in the field, and all and among all the people. And the garrison and even the raiders trembled and the earth quaked and it became a very great panic. Okay, so look what God's done here. He's taken Jonathan's little faith. Jonathan says, would you speak to me through these circumstances? God does speak. And already right away, Jonathan's defeating people, the armor bearers killing people. And now panic is beginning to spread. And this is one of God's great tools of defeating armies in the Old Testament is spreading panic in the camp. People don't know what's going on. There's no text messages going out. There's rumors flying. There's screaming happening. Nobody, nobody probably assumes that it's just one guy killing people. They probably think that it's some some crazy attack and so the whole garrison's upheaved it says even the raiders trembled so you got these raiding parties that have been going out so now they don't know what's going on and they're afraid do they run do they attack what's going on and now god really strikes and he strikes them with an earthquake and so now everybody's just upheaved in panic because jonathan had the faith to step out and do something here all right how does saul respond and the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. So we've stopped watching Jonathan. Now we've the camera has panned over, and now it's back to Saul. Then Saul said to the people who were with them, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. 
And now, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. And then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow, and there was great confusion. Okay, so, so much going on here. I'm going to try to hit as many points as possible as I can remember to do. So we've moved back over to Saul, and they're watching. And so they see that the camp is going into madness. Now, what Saul doesn't do is he doesn't respond with faith right away. He doesn't see an opportunity and go after them. Instead, he's, he starts going, is one of us missing? So he doesn't know that Saul, Jonathan's gone, which is funny that he lost his son, who was like the captain in his army. Remember, Jonathan was gifted with this other garrison. He doesn't know where Jonathan's gone. So they count and they find out what's going on there. And then instead of, again, assuming that Jonathan is doing this and wanting to like back up his son and go after him, he's now going to fall back into empty religion again. So he's going to call in Elijah, uh, Ahijah, bring the ark here, and they're going to try to discern. But even while they're trying to do this thing of like seeking God, they just realize that the Philistine army is imploding and exploding. So he says, oh, forget about it. We'll just go and attack. So Saul is just really messed up here. His, because his faith has defeated him, his reason and his wisdom and his military strategy has defeated, has left him as well. And there's so many echoes to the beginning of the book here. So we've got the Ark of God, again, being used in unbelief, not being an object of worship, but being used amongst somebody who's kind of hoping that it will accomplish something that his faith won't accomplish. And this this victory is now being won by a man with faith, Jonathan, who's humbled himself under God by saying, I'm willing to fight to the death for you, and now is under the grace of God because He's, he said, I believe in God that he can do anything. He humbles himself. Now he's under grace and is getting the great victory. And now here is Saul, who recently has kind of fallen into pride and depending on soldiers. And even when God is beginning to defeat Saul's enemies through Jonathan, he's like, well, who's here and who's not here? And and bring me the ark and, and not. And so there's this echo of uh, religious unbelief not being involved um, in the victory. In the first time with Eli, religious unbelief with the ark caused the defeat of Israel, but now it's just not contributing to the, to the victory of Israel. This victory is being won by a man of faith who humbles himself under God. Verse 20, then all, then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle and behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow. Remember just a few verses ago, we heard about how um, the Philistines thought they were great because they had swords and the Israelites didn't have swords. And now God is even using the fact that only the Philistines have swords against them. Now they're using their own swords against them. And the Israelites don't even need swords right now that they were deprived of because God has made it so that the Philistines are using their own swords against each other in this very great confusion. Now the Hebrews, who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned out to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. So all these people who had scattered before and gone into the caves. Remember, um, the Philistines were mocking them for going into caves. Now even all these guys are coming out as well to attack these Philistines. And it says, likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them into battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Evan. 
All right, so here we have, uh, what can faith do? Faith can do anything. Somebody who believes in God can accomplish very much. And so this is how we meet Jonathan, the true son of the king, who believes in the Lord, risks his life, and saves Israel on this day. Be blessed and be full of faith in your God.